Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, Premier League lashed by another storm. A storm called UEFA, with the biggest blow to a Manchester Giants Euro ambitions since Oli got a permanent deal. We reflect on the two-year Man City Champions League ban that shook the shakes and raised the stakes in the Premier League and round up all the weekend's action too. Yes, it's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener, good morning to you. Monday morning dawns. And excitingly, it brings with it the fresh faces of journalist, broadcaster and author Tom Williams. Hello, James. Hi to you, Tom. Also with us, the Athletics' Michael Cox, author of The Mixer and Zonal Marking, just back from the Emirates. Hi, James. Nice to see you, Michael. And yourself. And a veteran of 14 clubs and of the Totally Football League show, it's Sam Parkin. Hi, James. Sam, you were there at Swindon the day that uh, Razor Ruddock couldn't get into his shorts, is that right? It was more than one day, James. Right. (laughs) And he was probably slightly more mobile in the more recent Harry's Heroes on ITV than he was during my period at Swindon. I've not seen that. It's when um, Harry Redknapp got a collection of former internationals back together to lose a little bit of weight and play in a game and... Razor managed about 20 minutes, but very nice fella he was too. Nice to hear. Lots of important stories today, none bigger than the one that dropped before a ball was even kicked this weekend. Friday afternoon, UEFA announcing that Manchester City had been banned from European competition for two seasons for having falsely inflated their sponsorship revenues between 2012 and 2016. They had already been punished for overspending in this period. However, in 2018, those leaked documents published by Der Spiegel suggested that what City had claimed was a huge £67.5 million annual sponsorship deal was actually worth only £8 million, and the number had been pumped up as a front for even more overspending by their owner. Anyway, City going to lawyer up and appeal the case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, and apparently they were expecting it. But for the rest of us, even though this this had been in the air, there have been reports of it since last May, absolutely massive shock, no? Yes, um, I think in particular because there's been a feeling in recent years that FFP has, has lost its teeth. Uh, we know that the first time that PSG and Manchester City uh, fell into the uh, FFP investigators' crosshairs, they both got off with what basically amounted to a slap on the wrist, a fine and squad-capping measures. Um, And, yeah, it's almost felt as if FFP, while it hovers in the background, has become a secondary concern for those elite clubs. Uh, And although we knew that City were being investigated you kind of assume that they're just going to get, at the very worst, another slap on the wrist. So for UEFA to come out with such an unprecedentedly strong punishment was really surprising. Well, we'll get a little bit more detail on the parallels with PSG very shortly and potential ramifications for City if they don't get this overturned. But right now, to give us a little bit more detail uh, on UEFA's decision, we're joined by Kieran Maguire, author, of course of The Price of Football and part-time co-host of The Price of Football podcast. Kieran, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. First of all, was this a huge shock to you and what do you think the chances are that it'll all end up overturned? Uh, I think the uh, severity of the sentence was was a shock. Um, so I think the noises which were coming out of UEFA 
was it's effectively one year for breach of rules and one year for uh, being so aggressive and, and as far as they're concerned, sort of deliberately withholding information and evidence from the adjudicating panel. Uh, in terms of it being overturned, uh, I, I think City certainly have a chance. They will use the most expensive lawyers around. And uh, speaking to some people in the legal profession, um, they now think it's just going to be a battle of uh, evidence and who can be the most persuasive at CAS. And City will certainly come correct in that sense with the Abu Dhabi's a legal team with the Chinese government taking an interest in this, alongside all sorts of other private equity firms all involved in the city project. Uh, the, the Paris Saint-Germain comparison, which some people have raised, essentially another club funded by a state making vast investments beyond their actual revenue. Why is it you think that Man City have been hit by this in a way that PSG haven't? Uh, it looks as if the, the, the PSG proposal, the way that they... Uh, presented their evidence to the uh, adjudicating panel was simply more persuasive uh, in terms of the amount of money that's coming from the Qatari Tourist Authority. Uh, in, in terms of city, uh, they certainly weren't helped by the uh, by the leaks um, from, from football leaks in terms of uh, the alleged project Longbow, uh, where it, it appeared, uh, according to the emails that were was shown there that there was a vast overstating of the the money that was actually coming from the Etihad, and it was indirectly being supplied by the government itself. Beyond the fact that they appear to have fibbed to UEFA, though, isn't this just what all big clubs do? They overspend. How different is Man City's behaviour uh, to uh, other footballing institutions? Um, they, all, all clubs overspend in, in the sense that... Uh, any money they do receive, it inevitably ends up going to, to players, transfer fees and agents. So City are no better or worse than that, uh, than any other club. What UEFA have done, however, is that they've had a, a very precise set of rules. And in their opinion, uh, City have overstepped the mark. In terms of broader finance, City have no debt. Um, they are making a, a profit. They're breaking even every year. So if you therefore compare them to some of the other major clubs in Europe, uh, from a financial benchmark point of view, you'd actually conclude that they're better off. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Kira Maguire of The Price of Football podcast. Michael, are you shocked? Yeah, I was. I mean, I didn't expect the timing. I didn't expect the punishment. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. I'm struggling to think really of in English football that much of a precedent of a team being, you know, an individual team being handed such a severe penalty. And you have to ask questions really about Guardiola's future. I mean, he's won two league titles with City. I think the obvious question for him was whether he can take City to the Champions League. Obviously, they've got a chance to do that this season. But if not, I mean, two years away... Guardiola's into his fourth season. He doesn't tend to stick around very long. So if he really has the Champions League in his sights, he's looking at another three years after this before he's got a chance of winning it. So right. you wonder whether he will take this as an opportunity to walk away. I don't know the contractual situation, but I think his, uh, you know, if he needs to get out of a contract, I think his his team can probably argue reasonably that this is not the situation that was presented to him when he signed a contract. Also raises questions about how it's going to impact on their motivation. This is already a club that was a little bit in limbo in the Premier League. They're not going to win it. They don't look like they're going to drop out of top four if that's even relevant anymore. Uh, they've now got the Champions League, but even if they win it, they can't stay in it. 
Is this going to impact on the team, do you think, Sam? Well, ultimately it will do because I think the individuals will seriously be considering their futures now, especially the ones that are in their peaks, approaching their peaks, the ones that could realistically walk into Real Madrid, a Barcelona side at the moment. I'm talking about De Bruyne, Sterling, definitely. You could probably put Bernardo Silva in the mix there as well. Sane, who maybe hasn't always had the trust of Guardiola anyway. So, of course, the agents will be speaking to the players and Though that quartet that I've just spoke about could probably go and play in any side and they have to be playing in the Champions League. Celia brought in all sorts of players and I was quite curious what the excess money that they'd spent and it had brought them, how much of a decisive factor might it have been in, say, the, the 2014 title-winning campaign. The answer is it was sacking Mancini that first took them over the limit. And in terms of the early signings, I mean, before the 2014 win, you had Javi Garcia came in at 18 million. He was the, the biggest signing that year. Beyond that, Fernandinho the, the next year, 36 million, and Elikiam Mangala. It wasn't until you get to 2015, 2016 that you started having really massive names like De Bruyne and, and Sterling coming in. Still, rules is rules, Tom. Yeah, and that's the issue. And City clearly have grievances with the very concept of FFP with some of the procedure. There are a lot of Manchester City fans who feel that uh, FFP just in itself is unfair in that it just sort of preserves the status quo. Um, But as you say, these are the rules that all the clubs in Europe signed up to and that all the clubs, all the major clubs bar City have have managed to uh, follow. Um, So while there are, you know, FFP is is a well-intentioned system that has some has had some really notable achievements, uh, principally in terms of the eradication of huge and unsustainable levels of debt within European football. But there was always going to be the consequence that it preserved the status quo because that's what happens when you stop people spending money right. in an unsustainable fashion. You say all the other clubs managed to live by it. PSG would be the kind of exception to that, who also... Uh, came under investigation by UEFA when they, first of all, spent $400 million in one summer on Neymar Jr. and Mbappé and then explained it all away with a, a very similar to Man City's case, a $100 million a year sponsorship deal by the Tourist Board of Qatar. Now, some reports had that sponsorship deal only worth, what was it, $6 million, not 100 So how did they get away with it and City haven't? Is it just because of the football leaks of the emails? Well, the issue with PSG was that when UEFA's investigatory body looked at their sponsorship agreements, um, they were presented with two different analyses carried out by two different firms, uh, sports marketing firms, one of which said that these sponsorship deals had been grossly inflated, one of which said that they hadn't. And what reportedly happened was that UEFA's investigators decided that actually these deals hadn't been inflated, that they were fair. And as a consequence, um, PSG were cleared. There then followed this curious succession of events where UEFA tried to reopen the investigation. PSG challenged it on a technicality uh, to do with the amount of time there'd been between the announcement of the investigation reopening and that investigation actually reopening and the court of arbitration for sport threw it out um on and that technicality on that technicality and as you say what has damned city has been the the football leaks emails that were published in der spiegel and 
when that huge cache of emails was released, that ultimately there was nothing in it that damned PSG. Right. I imagine that City will be talking about PSG when they get to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, PSG, whose whose owner, Nasser Al-Khalafi, is, is on the UEFA Executive Committee. And another man who's there is, of course, Andrea Agnelli, whose club Juventus had a massive deal for Cristiano Ronaldo, part of which was funded by a sudden increase in... Jeep sponsorship of Juventus. Jeep, of course, owned by Fiat, who are also major shareholders in Juventus. So this isn't an isolated case. That said, Michael, you've got very little um, sympathy for Man City at this point. I mean, to go back to what you said about Mancini, how they basically they went over when they sacked Mancini. The way that they got around that was convincing their sponsors to pay them the bonuses uh, they would have been due had they won the FA Cup. Of course, they lost the FA Cup final to Wigan. The irony is they completely undermined their own preparations for that by essentially leaking that they were about to sack Mancini. And all the players knew he was about to go. There was this suggestion they lost motivation or you know weren't playing for him. So that, I mean, is just bad management of a club beyond the rules of FFP. That's just, you know, they've got themselves into a right state there. Mm. Well, what a state they have got themselves into. But uh, presumably before this summer, before June... Hopefully, uh, we will get a ruling uh, on whether they will be taking part in the next two years, the next year of Champions League. Uh, the irony being that you were just saying how FFP has turned football into a little bit more of a closed shop. This ruling, Tom, has opened it up enormously because now, if it stands, fifth place in the Premier League is the new fourth. City's Champions League Perth berth, rather, set to pass down to whoever uh, comes next down in, in the table. Currently, that's Spurs, who are in fifth place, but only five points separating them from, say, Man United all the way down in ninth. Almost as excitingly, eighth place could be enough to get you into the Europa League. Anyway, Sam, it's a whole new paradigm, and boy, is it going to make the end of season ever so dramatic. It's going to be fascinating. I suppose we're all going to be just waiting to see if Sheffield United, for one, can maintain this outstanding form, I suppose. Burnley, Burnley. Burnley, yeah, not for me, but Wolves as well, after what they've done, you know, last season, getting in the Europa, maybe that uh, build-up of games that could come if they're successful in the Europa towards the, the end of this season, will they tail off in the Premier League, but certainly there's going to be people rooting for the, the smaller clubs amongst Clarence, the, Clarence in the Champions traditional League. top six. Happy now, UEFA? I think that's got to be the, <laughs> the, the narrative. It's good that uh, Sheffield United's last Premier League season, of course, was about the court case, whether they stayed up with West Ham and Tevez. Now they've got a court case that could see them in the Champions League. Incredible. The circle of life. So much drama on and off the field between now and an undetermined point in the future. And when the judges bang their gavel again, uh, let's talk about some of the football from this weekend. Let's talk about Spurs in fifth place after this. Join Ruby Walsh, Tom Nugent and Paddy Power on their racing podcast, From the Horse's Mouth, as they build up to the 2020 Cheltenham Festival each week. New episodes every Friday. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. 40 seconds of added time remaining. (laughs) Well, two Villa players collided. There's a mistake! Son running forward, Son into the penalty here, is it 3-2? It is 3-2! Son beats Rayner! Sunday afternoon at Villa Park, Aston Villa 2, Tottenham Hotspur 3. What a game this was, deserves almost a part all to itself. Spurs, Sam, with the win, up to fifth place, they're only one point behind Chelsea in fourth place, although Chelsea yet to play 
And that 93rd minute winner from Sun. Yeah, I mean, in Harry Kane's absence, the one thing he's done is continue to score goals. I think that's six in his last five games. I still believe that his performance levels haven't been anywhere near... Sons. Sons, where they were at the start of the season and also in past campaigns. Um, that said, he's continuing to score, but I think it has affected him, the red card uh, against Chelsea and, really? and the absence of Harry Kane as well. It's difficult to really analyse Jose Mourinho's side at the moment because defensively they're calamitous at times, but going forward with the front four they had right. on display today... You know, electric at times, Mora, Son, um, Bergvine and, and Ali, the way they win the ball back today against an Aston Villa side who struggled a little bit playing out into midfield. They look really good, uh, you know, on occasions. Spurs, they're not very Mourinho, are they? No, they're not. It's been very strange. I think from the outset, we saw a real commitment to attack, a different kind of structure in possession to what we usually associate with Mourinho. I mean, the strange thing is Spurs have good centre-backs. You know, they shouldn't be considering this this number of goals, but they don't seem to protect them very well. They seem mm. to be exposed and isolated in, in situations quite a lot. So, Well, yeah, at saying, Michael, Mourinho doesn't get enough credit for his results at Spurs this season, especially considered, considering how imbalanced and temperamental they looked when he took over. Yeah, that's probably fair. I mean, I must admit, when he took over, I didn't really think they had a shot at uh, the Champions League places, albeit I didn't expect Chelsea and Leicester to ease off. I certainly didn't expect City to be potentially expelled from the competition. But uh, yeah, just to have them in contention, I think he has done quite a good job in a slightly unconvincing way. But they keep on having these ding-dong 3-2s. I think it's 3 Three three twos since he took over. Which four, is... four of them, actually. This four is of the them. fourth of them, wow. yeah. Okay. Tyrone Ming's tonsils, though, have a lot to do with this one. A Tom Williams, because were it not for Tyro Ming's tonsils, mm-hmm. uh, poor old Bjorn Engels would not have ended up centre stage. Engels uh, with dirty faces. Well, yes, bad uh, marks for Engels. Quite, yeah. <laughs> anymore. Uh, he got his angles wrong on that. <laughs> he certainly did get his angles all <laughs> over the place. On that final goal, extraordinary for anyone who didn't see it. So, how did that dramatic Spurs winner with about twenty-five seconds left on the clock unfold? Well, Bjorn Engels, having already atoned for conceding uh, the penalty that allowed Spurs to go two on up with an equaliser early in the second half, elects to try and control uh, a clearance from Davinson Sanchez with the sole of his foot quite nonchalantly. It skins underneath And the ball him. just skids underneath his foot mm. through to Son heung and he runs through and sticks it past Pepe Reina. It was interesting, that, not it? Engels involved in, in all the goals, really. Alderweireld as well, very much present because... He scored the own goal, which put Villa in front. And then, oh my goodness, his equaliser, Sam. It's a brilliant finish, instinctive finish on the turn. I think it was Dyer that kind of knocked it in his direction. I think maybe at fault as well for Engels' goal. He certainly got above Alderweireld and struggling from set pieces. I don't think that defensively they have the trust in Lloris at the moment. Very shaky in the home game, the replay against Southampton in the FA Cup where should have done better for certainly Shane Long's goal. And, and again today, you, you question Alderweireld's involvement in the goals they defended, but I think the goalkeeper as well is is under pressure to be better at the moment as well. Hugo Lloris. Absolutely. At the other end, what did you make of Pepe Reina? Well, I think his distribution's fantastic, a, a calming influence on their respective defence, the back three as it is at the moment. And yeah, he made some very good saves. Probably didn't deserve to be on the losing side right. today. Although equally, the way that the, the pressure was building up from Spurs, maybe that winner 
was deserved. Rayner ripping his shorts off almost in frustration at, uh, on Son's penalty. Uh, when He did that very sort of uh, Iberian thing of mm. like kind of giving himself a self-wedgie. Right. Which you sometimes see Cristiano Ronaldo do if he's like shanked a free kick over the bar. Right. Um, you just sort of grab your shorts and just kind of pull. Fabian Bartes used to do that quite a lot as well. As a way of concentrating the mind, perhaps. Yes, perhaps, okay. yeah. That sudden pressure in the groin region mm. just getting you to refocus um, would. but yeah a really a really um, sort of slapdash very open game um, and I, I think as Michael was saying it is, it is surprising to see Jose Mourinho come into a team and have no discernible impact on their ability to defend I thought all of Spurs back five played poorly I think they all had moments of culpability at times um, but having said that there is there is a sort of hardiness now to Spurs. I mean, they went into the winter break off the back of that smash and grab win over Manchester City, right. got the win today in stoppage time. That's now three wins on the spin in the league for the first time in a year. Wow. Um, and OK, you, you know, it, today was very far from a routine win. But the fact that they carried on plugging away suggests there is, you know, there is perhaps something happening there. Well, it leaves Spurs just one point behind Chelsea, who, of course, will be playing Monday night against Man United. Chelsea will be hosting Spurs next Saturday lunchtime. Before any of that, of course, Tottenham have a date with RB Leipzig on Wednesday night. Michael, are you excited about that game? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting over two legs. Okay. Um, main thing about Leipzig is, is Timo Werner, of course, who's been in electric form this season. Maybe not so much since the turn of the year, actually, but, um, I mean, he's, he's basically scoring a goal a game and... His speed is just incredible, and I think we'll see it even deeper than usual Mourinho defensive line and, and really a, a counter-attacking strategy even in the home leg. Right. Of course, Spurs' last home leg against the Champions League side from Germany didn't work out too well for them, the, the Bayern Munich game. Julian Nagelsmann regarded as one of the most astute tactical minds, even though he's, what, only about 23? <laughs> uh, and uh, he, he oversaw a, a, another 3-0 victory for his side on, on Friday night which kept them very much in the title race in the Bundesliga. They've had an extra two days to prepare for this game. Yeah, that's very useful. There's also an interesting angle here in that uh, RB Leipzig's head of recruitment is a guy called Paul Mitchell, who used to do the same job at Tottenham Hotspur. So, in a sense, he's kind of created both of these teams. Right. Morris Voltz, I think, is also involved in the <laughs> He is, yes. Yeah. Believe it or not, I played with Paul Mitchell. Did you? Yeah, he was a tough tackling right back, central midfield as well. And he came through at Wigan, I believe. But I've never envisaged him going on and, and doing this. He was a very unassuming character and he's gone on and been, I suppose, a, a powerhouse in that field, hasn't he, the last few years? Right, and busy as well because they, they certainly acquire and then... Uh... Yeah, big part of Pochettino at Southampton, I think, during that period when they were rec- recruiting, you know, some outstanding players that have gone on to join some of the biggest clubs in He this was country. involved in that as well? He right? was the man. He oh. brought in the likes of Sadio Mane, I guess, would be the most... Uh... Exciting pickup, and I believe that's how he got to know the uh, Red Bull franchise because he came from Red Bull Salzburg. Salzburg. Yeah, indeed he did. Although Leipzig, very much nothing to do with Red Bull, as I understand it. Definitely, um, not. we'll be speaking a lot more about RB Leipzig in Tuesday's Totally Football Show when we'll have the Euro lads in talking about all the Champions League and yes, Europa League fixtures that are coming up midweek. Liverpool, of course are also going to be in action. They're back where they became champions last summer at the Wanda Metropolitano, taking on Atletico Madrid. Uh, Liverpool, who on Saturday notched up their 17th straight league victory. It was a narrow one. 1-0 in Norwich against the battling Canaries. Uh, Sadio Mane returning uh, to action and proving immediately decisive. Took his goal beautifully 
flighted pass from Jordan Henderson and Mane leaps to control it uh, and then finishes with a really crisp left foot shot and uh, you know a goal that sort of uh, demonstrates all of his strengths his ability to strike the ball equally well with either foot that sharpness in front of goal the fact that he doesn't need you know don't need to be on the pitch for a few minutes at that point and he's already straight into the thick of it um, and Liverpool who'd been quite sort of leggy I felt um, looked like they were you know perhaps a little bit still on the beach after their winter mm. break uh, Norwich as we know um, you know incredible that they're where they are in the league when you think about how many times you watch them and are impressed by the quality of their football but yeah the sort of thing we've seen Liverpool do week after week after week this season be slightly below their best but still get the win the Norwich players seemed almost dumbfounded at what Sadio Mane had managed to do in terms of controlling that ball and then fashioning a shot Sam how difficult was it Incredibly difficult. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit surprised in the modern game that there wasn't more made of the the little shove on the centre half on Zimmerman, mm. wasn't it? Um, Daniel Farker seemed to very much take it in his stride. I don't know that's because of his friendship, maybe with Jurgen Klopp, he was very uh, nice about them in defeat. But um, no, I thought Norwich did a, a pretty good job. We know that they were very good against Manchester City earlier on this season. It was a similar type of display, similar type of chances that they were able to create passes from deep and midfield runners getting in beyond Pookie, maybe a little bit over elaborate at times, but I felt that the setup was the right one. It was almost 4-4-1-1, so fullbacks having extra protection from from Cantwell certainly. I think the setup was the right one, just that clinical element to the game missing for the Canaries. Right, and you you can lose 1-0 to Liverpool. It happens. Liverpool indeed have made the best start ever anywhere by any team. 76 points from 26 games, unprecedented in the history of Europe's top five leagues. Uh, and a real contrast, too, to the team they will be facing on Wednesday in Madrid, Atletico, who are European powerhouses, yes, and perennial finalists under Diego Simeone. But this year, very much a, an end of an era feel to them. They've only had one win in their last seven. They're barely scoring goals. And that famous rock-solid Atleti defence is just not there anymore. I mean, the goals considered rates okay. I mean, it's well below a goal a game. But yeah, the problem with scoring goals, when you look at the statistics, they're actually creating chances uh, on a par or even better than the last two seasons. They just keep on uh, missing chances and, and people have pointed the finger at Morata. But it's not just him. You look at the stats, all the forwards really missing chances. So the stats do suggest that, you know, an improvement could be imminent around the corner. But I think the two sides have gone in completely different directions. They're quite similar. I think Simeone and Klopp in many ways, you know, very kind of young, vibrant, energetic managers about pressing heavily you look at the pressing stats I mean Liverpool obviously still do that very well but they've added to it with other elements of the game Atleti have really dropped back even further and they're quite passive now without possession which is almost sad to see considering how effective they used to be at that so yeah I mean for anyone who hasn't seen Atletico Madrid this season Liverpool start this as really really strong favourites any chance do you think of Atleti getting it together for one night and springing an upset I, I, I don't think so personally I think Liverpool are just incredibly good I mean incredibly good side the stats you say are just well literally we've never seen anything like it have we never I mean, no. the thought occurs to you mm. that this will probably or possibly be the greatest season that any club will ever have ever as long as football is played because it's very difficult to improve on near perfection. They've won all but one match. They might drop another two, four points between now and the end of the season. Maybe they'll have a slump. I don't know. But if they carry on at this rhythm, they will have achieved something 
that cannot be bettered. We kind of thought the Arsenal's invincible season couldn't be bettered. And, OK, Liverpool are, are no less or no more unbeaten than Arsenal. Um, but, you know, statistically, it's much more impressive. And, you know, the fact that we're now starting to, to grasp around with even more desperation for things we can compare this team to and, and running out of options. I mean, if Liverpool carry on at this rate... They would have sort of completed football in a way. Just on the subject of Arsenal's invincibles, Duncan Alexander pointing out that Liverpool could complete their season with another two wins and ten draws and still have a better record than the invincibles. Yeah. One of the difficulties with Liverpool is that in this in this business, you find yourself using hyperbole a lot. You know, this is the greatest season ever. This is the greatest team ever. And it means that when something like this happens, you almost don't have the vocabulary to adequately describe it because it's so far beyond anything else we've ever witnessed. And yeah, it it feels like a season that cannot really be improved upon. Well, we'll see. We'll see. More on those Champions League clashes, as I say, in Tuesday's show. Up next today... We're going to be heading off to the Emirates to hear all about the big clash between 11th and 12th in the Premier League. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Pepe, Lacazette in position, Lacazette! A perfect Arsenal afternoon is crowned. Yep, Arsenal getting their second win in eight under Mikel Arteta. 4-0 over Newcastle, they move up to 10th place. Still need maybe a few more clubs to get banned before they can start to think about Champions League. But Michael, you were there at the Emirates. And I know you're a keen student of how Arsenal are evolving under their new manager. What did you make of this? I thought the first half was probably the worst they've played so far under Arteta, maybe with the exception of the first half against Leeds in the FA Cup. I thought it was really sluggish, the kind of tempo in possession. They almost seemed surprised that Newcastle was sitting so deep. I mean, we all know that's how Newcastle are going to play, and they had two weeks to prepare for it. They played much better in the second half. I thought the, the tempo of the passing was crisper. Was there, was there any change behind that, or just a, a, a different mentality? There was no big tactical change, I don't think. But as I say, I think they passed the ball quicker. And I think sometimes it's just a case of you get one kind of one-off moment the mood changes, the mentality changes. I, mean, I didn't think it was a particularly good cross from Pepe, to be honest. I thought that should have been defended much better. Ball seemed to be in the air for a hell of a long time. But as soon as they got that first one, I mean, the Emirates is such a kind of, you know, <laughs> they do really only sing when they're winning, to, to use the phrase. And then it felt inevitable Arsenal would go on and score more. I think there were some positives. I thought Ceballos was a surprise pick in that deep midfield role. I think it's the first time he started under Arteta and certainly the first time he's played in that deep midfield role. But I thought he was excellent. You know, I was watching him quite closely. The way he receives the ball, the weight of his passes, the way he scans the pitch. And also the fact that because Newcastle were playing a 5-4-1, didn't really have a number 10 closing him down, he was dribbling forward a lot and committing midfielders and that was opening up space. Mm. And the other player who played really well was Saka on the left flank and... You know, at first that seemed a bit of a compromise putting him there because he was a an attacker in the youth system. But with this system that Arsenal play, almost forming a front five with Xhaka moving across to cover, Saka's got license to play almost like a, an attacker. And um, yeah, he was he was often Arsenal's outball and often the most threatening player in the final third. So there's some positives from it, but I still think there's question marks about the forward line. You know, Enketia came into the side, did okay, but. I'm not quite sure many Arsenal fans would choose that format with Aubameyang on the left rather than Martinelli or Lacazette playing right. for different reasons. So there's still things to tweak, but it was a big win for Arsenal because right. Arsenal have been playing all right, but the, the results have been pretty pretty flat. So well, had, they, had they gone another game without winning, I think some questions would have been asked. Lacazette getting a goal at the end, the fourth goal of the match and a huge 
a celebration by him and his teammates, suggesting that uh, they're quite happy to see him back uh, in the lineup, even as a sub. As for Saka, it was admittedly against a very unambitious Newcastle side, but he looked like one of the most exciting prospects in the, the Premier League in that performance. Well, well, he was terrific, and early part of the season he played at Old Trafford, a much more attacking role. Uh, and, and was tremendous, um, you know, really made an impact on that evening. And, and to see him playing at left-back, obviously, in the, the absence of Tierney, who I believe is going to go on and become a really good Premier League player for Arsenal. Uh, tremendous again today. And I think in that second half, we felt Aubameyang was maybe joining in with Nketiah a little bit more in that second half. And they, they spoke about it post-match, and that allowed Saka to be even more offensive uh, and charge up and down that left-hand side. And... Lazaro, the, the fullback, had a crazy four or five minute spell where he was at fault for the first goal. As Michael says, the delivery was a little bit floaty from Pepe. His body shape was all wrong. And then allowing Saka to turn for the second one was criminal, really. The nutmeg is, is brilliant skill. We, we enjoy that. But the first bit of defending, really poor. And he'll be feeling poor tonight because Newcastle were very much in the game at that stage. Right. Mr. Urza's goal, by the way, the third one of Arsenal's four Involved 35 passes in the build-up. Was there an area of expectancy building around the Emirates as this masterpiece began to take shape in front of you, Michael? Uh, no, not particularly, but I think Arsenal were in control of the game. I mean, the one thing you would say about Newcastle are, are not a great attacking side, but they do have a lot of counter-attacking threat that we saw in the first half. Um, I think that's been one thing that's generally been quite good about Arsenal. They haven't been too prone to counter-attacks. And yeah, in the second half, as soon as they were ahead, I can't really remember Newcastle threatening. I think Sam Maximan and, and Almiron, who were very bright in the first half, actually faded. And again, I'd say Ceballos was a big player in that. He, he just seemed to calm the tempo and real intelligence, knows how to use the ball, knows that if he's, you know, Newcastle sitting so deep, knows that if you turn up, you don't have to continue attacking. You can just keep the ball in deep positions and tempt the opposition forward. So I thought Arsenal managed the game quite well. Once they got ahead, I think Arsenal were pretty good, but I was just never convinced they were going to get that first goal. Sam, you weren't impressed with Newcastle though. Well, I felt they played well first half, but me and Tom were, were talking. I just... Considering where Arsenal positioned, the, the lack of victories under Arteta, was there the opportunity for Newcastle to be a bit bolder from the start and maybe play a 4-2-3-1 as they finished just to have that support for, for the striker? In the first half when they countered very well through Almiron and, and Sam Maximan, they didn't have the players in the box. They didn't have players able to keep up with the ferocious pace that those two have uh, when they're dribbling on the ball and powering forward. So I, I, I just felt maybe a missed opportunity against a team you know, that haven't been uh, firing on all cylinders. As it stands then, Arsenal climbing all the way up to 10th place, uh, while right behind them, look out, here come Burnley. Burnley, who Saturday were 2-1 winners away at St Mary's. That's their second straight uh, away victory. The previous one coming at Old Trafford, Tom. Clarets, are they for real? Yeah, I mean, they... 10 points from, the, from, from possible 12 in the last uh, four games. Yeah, three wins and a draw, which includes, as you say, that victory at Old Trafford and a home win over Leicester. Mm, um, wow. They had that run of four defeats prior to that, um, but are now unbeaten in four. Um, and I feel like a similar thing happened last season, that you know that Burnley, once they hit their straps of, you know, everyone knows how Sean Dyche wants them to play, everyone knows what their what their roles are, and you're just kind of waiting for for that team to re-emerge and that's what we've seen in, in the last the last four matches um, slightly fortuitous way of going in front with 
ex-Clarets man Danny Ings curiously deciding to abandon his position on the near post and allowing that corner from Ashley Westwood to um, to curl in. Um, but then after Ings equalises, Matty Vidra um, yeah, scores absolutely sensational well, goals. that's what we didn't expect. Front. Yeah, I mean, you know, Burnley, that hierarchy of centre-forwards is very well established with, with Barnes and Woods and then Jay Rodriguez and Vidra hasn't really had much of a look in and he's one of those players who... You know, has often looked quite good in the Championship and never really quite cut it in the Premier League. It was his first goal for Burnley since September 2018, uh, and it was an absolute beauty. Mm. Um, and I think Burnley need that, given that they are so dependent on that core of first-team players. They need guys like Vidra to chip in with a contribution when they do get involved. Um, and yeah, I suppose that the hope will be that that'll give him the confidence now to start scoring a bit more frequently. Magnificent. But they've got a few players who can score goals like that. I mean, we think of them as you know, a long ball side and that was from a long ball. But, you know, Rodriguez scored a cracking goal. Was it Old Trafford? He scored a, a brilliant yeah. goal at. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashley Barnes is a brilliant volley of the ball as well. So, you know, Wood is obviously the guy who's usually the target for for the long balls. But the players who can feed off him and get on those knockdowns and flick-ons and provide a moment of magic, they have got some real technical quality, Burnley. Uh, two points off eight, which could mean Europa League. They're one, two, three, four, five, six points off. Champions League and fifth, Cass uh, pending. Very good. Southampton had the worst home record in the Premier League. Only 11 points, one at home. Mm. Friday night, meanwhile, it was Wolves against Leicester. Big game in the Midlands. Both teams coming off those rest weekends, winter break things. So all fired up for this. Slightly underwhelming nil-nil then, Michael. It was entertaining enough. I think Wolves should have won it. I mean, Jimenez had two really good chances. The second one in particular from the well, corner. also, just like on the opening day of the season when it also finished nil-nil, Wolves were controversially denied a goal by your friend, Mr. <laughs> Var. I got to say, if I had not seen in a, a freeze frame of that, you could have played me that goal ten times and I wouldn't have been able to work out. I'm what still very confused. Why is it offside? Well, because when uh, Jota plays the short corner, he's yep. ahead. He's, his heel is just ahead of the pass that comes back to him even though the pass is backwards that doesn't actually matter because he was slightly ahead of the player who was passing the ball but the pass came back backwards it, it doesn't matter he, he was ahead of the ball I see I'm no clearer on this Tom one of the weird of our ones yeah well basically Jota plays the corner short into the, the feet of a teammate right. and when the teammate returns the ball to uh, him even though his, his teammate plays the ball backwards ahead, yeah. his heel is still slightly ahead but yeah it was it was a curious so one. And even I think though those the ball the... travels backwards his heel oh, right. yeah because he's still his heel technically is in an offside position. I think those are the the most infuriating VAR decisions. I think if the ball goes into the box and the striker scores and it turns out the striker was offside, you think, well, okay, fair enough. It's when it's these build-up ones. There's one with John Lundstrom, Sheffield United against, yeah. who was it, one of the London clubs? A similar thing. And it's a guy right out on the touchline who touches the ball about you know, three passes before it ends up in the back of the net. Yeah, or where, for example, the, the players are breaking, trying to beat the offside trap and they're leaning and it's a, there's a part of their body that could score a goal, potentially. But here you actually had a pass being received and it wasn't by the bit of the, of the, of the body that was fractured offside. It was completely onside, the foot that received the ball. And the thing is, and we saw this as the players were coming off at half-time, the referee didn't actually know what the offside was. So I think that's quite... I mean, you can talk about this better than me, but... In most of the situation before in football, if, if a decision went against you, you'd know what it was for. I mean, I can't imagine any of the players would have suspected that would have been given it. It just must be so hard to accept it. I think a strange emotion for the players to having to play on during that half and not actually knowing why they're not ahead in that game. So 
Connor Cody. Quite you, a familiar one for Wolves, though, because it's happened to them yeah. a lot. Yeah, they're, they're top of the table, aren't they? Well, they're, I think they're second the to second, Sheffield United, yeah. yeah, in that regard. So, yeah, and Connor Cody, obviously angry at half-time, but he was perfectly eloquent when he uh, approached Mike Dean, wasn't it, mm. um, to, to get some answers. And Mike Dean can't give them to him, which is... Surreal, um, but we shouldn't be surprised because Wolves have, I think that's 12 draws out of 26 games so far this season. They've had eight one one, so they are very much the draw specialists along with Arsenal. Jamie Vardy once again failing to score. He's now on his longest run without a top flight scoring strike since February 2017. What, what's happened to him, Sam? Well, I was there the night when he got his um, his buttock injury, I think it was, against West Ham. Um, and they were fantastic that evening. It didn't seem to disrupt them too much. But I think maybe just that injury just set him back a little bit. Um, we know he relies on that ex- explosive pace, which probably comes from his gluteus maximus. Okay. Um, really? Do you think it's just taken us... <laughs> no, I think it just sets you back sometimes, doesn't right. it, if you miss a little bit of training. Um, they were unusually... Uncreative, I, I thought against Wolves, um, and no reason for that really. You know, Madison was in the team. Uh, Perez, who's been good at times this season, it was just a night where I think Wolves edged it. And as Michael said, Jimenez will be ruined. Certainly, the second opportunity was a pretty straightforward header for him. So they were fortunate to escape with a point. I'm sure he'll come back, Vardy. He's been that good this season. He's been so important for Brendan Rodgers. It's probably just a little bit of a blip. Okay, But it's funny you say it's his worst run since February 2017 because the year before that was the title winning season. And he also had quite a bad run at at that point in the title winning season because in autumn he broke Van Nistelrooy's record but then in the title winning season in spring he had a a run where I think he went one goal in nine games and that was from the penalty spot so uh, yeah maybe interesting to look back at his seasons maybe he does generally have very good autumns and then dips off after Christmas I see so Leicester have sort of gone off the boil themselves a bit only one win in five so it's not like everything is working but Vardy um there's obviously, you know, been a, a loss of momentum, so that's probably a factor in it as well. Okay, the last team that Jamie Vardy scored against, by the way, is Man City, who just so happened to be their opponents this coming weekend. As it stands, Leicester still in third place, one point behind City, while Wolves are in seventh, four points off the new Champions League dotted line, which is in just after Spurs in fifth. Haha. Uh, two games still to come, of course, from this round of action. We'll discuss those next. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Chelsea are taking on Man United Monday night in what could be the game of the round, to be fair. It was certainly an exciting clash when they met at Old Trafford on the opening day of the season. A 4-0 win, which caught many people by surprise. Has Frank Lampard learnt how to deal with a counter-attacking opponent? What, in relation to the first game? Yeah. The reverse fixture. I mean, I thought that was the silliest 4 0 I've ever seen. Uh-huh. I thought Chelsea were the better side by miles. So, yeah, I'm not sure there were necessarily lessons from that. But, uh, yeah, it should be a good game. I think I'd have Chelsea as the favourites. But Manchester United do tend to be good against good opposition. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like you said, I think the tie of uh, a very elongated round. Mm. Odin Nagalu uh, is... Apparently in the squad, he's been cleared from his uh, coronavirus. Uh, what's his official name, Tom? Uh, COVID-19, I right. believe. Uh, the quarantine that he'd been in, you know, training on his own in the Taekwondo Centre. And Nuridian tweeting, a genius, nobody's going to want to mark him. It uh, could be an important tactical tweak, that one from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Who's going to be in goal for Chelsea? Looks like Kepa. I yeah. would think so. Mm. If you look at the 
you know, he dropped for the for the Leicester game, but it's given him an opportunity to rest for for 16 days, uh, not a physical rest maybe, but just mentally, he's been very much under scrutiny. I don't think Caballero did too much wrong. Uh, he went on walkabouts a little bit for was it Chilwell's goal. So, I think Kepper comes back in, but for, for this one, but yeah, in terms of his form, his consistency, it's, it's not been good enough considering the amount of money they've paid for him. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Frank Lampard is is looking ahead to the summer and maybe thinking that they have to improve in, in that department. And there's a lot of improvements they need to make, I think, at Chelsea. I think getting Zayek already will prove to be a very good signing because I think that's an area they're lacking. I think Mount's form has dipped considerably. Pedro's obviously not in his plans. And William's been very sporadic in his performances, mm. uh, his, his top performances. He got one at, at Tottenham recently, obviously. But I think that's an area that Frank Lampard wanted to strengthen and to get one over the line early. I think he's very good news for Chelsea. OK. So Chelsea were your first club, weren't they? Yeah. Did you used to clean boots back in those days? I did, yeah, indeed, yeah. Whose boots did you clean? I had the pleasure of cleaning Bernard Lambord's my first season, um, who wasn't a particularly great signing maybe for Chelsea during that period, but very nice man. And um, then Luca Vialli and Ray oh, Wilkins. You, really? You cleaned yeah. their boots? I think because I was relatively sensible, I was allowed into the staff quarters and uh, I cleaned Luca's boots and Ray Wilkins. And, and Luca was very particular about his black Diodoras with the aluminous yellow because he used to put the dates on them as well in terms of w- how long he'd wear them for, what period of the season. So he'd have his moulded studs over the pre-season and the August and September, and then they'd be thrown. And then he'd have his winter boots. So, yeah, quite unique in terms of the way, how meticulous he was, I suppose. What, and what about Ray? Ray, I was more interested in his clothes, just looking what was on his peg, because he had that real Italian influence. So right. he was just immaculate and... Being a QPR fan growing up, James, he was a hero of mine. So to get to work with him and knowing as well that I was kind of behind enemy lines being a QPR fan, um, he took a bit of a shine to me. And yeah, I I love Ray. Ironic because you were actually taking a bit of a shine to his boots. I was indeed. (laughs) Right. I think he was probably an Umbro Speciali man, whereas Luca had the more um, over-the-top Deodoras. Yeah. Yeah. When did they phase out uh, apprentices uh, doing boots for... The older boys. Not long after my time. I, well, in, in Chelsea, at Chelsea, they obviously, when they moved to Cobham, I would suggest that was the end of it oh. because prior to that, we were at Harlington, which was pretty much underneath the flight path yeah. um, and it had its own microclimate as well. It seemed to just pour London down University, with rain. It's University College. Yeah, yeah, and it was just... Oh, no, Imperial, sorry. Imperial University, yeah. yeah so it was a very peculiar place and, and I think there's a famous story when Glenn Hoddle got the gig there was still a payphone that he had to use to conduct his transfer activity google it listeners a mm. payphone <laughs> right it's amazing when you hear the stories of some of these training grounds like relatively recently i mean newcastle in that near title winning season were just using durham university's facilities at blackburn when they won the title were using like a uh, just a council park next to a cemetery. right i mean it's just extraordinary you look at the progress you know this new liverpool training ground is just you know, worlds away. And it's only really, what, 20 years on from that? Palmer, equally, the season they won the Cup Winners' Cup. At Wembley, they were training the local part then. (laughs) I mean, you know, not local here, the local Palmer. Uh, Anyway, all right, so uh, that's very exciting. And Chelsea are taking on Man United. Tom, did you have a... You do? Yeah, just to say that Manchester United are seeking to complete what would be their first league double over Chelsea since the 1987-88 season, which seems remarkable. Um, but then, uh, thinking about it, they were always a bit of a bogey team in the early 
Ferguson years, then Mourinho came in, and in recent years they've had much the better of the rivalry. They've only lost one of their last 17 home games against United in the league. But even so, I was quite surprised by that. Mm. All right. Wednesday, the round finally comes to an end when Man City get to play that clash of West Ham that was... Uh, postponed because of the weather. That was Storm Kira back then, wasn't it? Uh, obviously, there's been other news which has rather overshadowed this clash. From Man City's perspective, from West Ham's perspective, possible debut for Jared Bowen and an extra weekend off. Anything else positive for them? Well, um, they have gone five league games without a win since they beat Bournemouth 4-0 in David Moyes' first game in charge. And in the next six league games, they're away at Man City, away at Liverpool. Um, They've also got games coming up against Arsenal, Wolves and Spurs. So it doesn't look especially rosy for West Ham at the moment. Sam, in the meantime, Jared Bowen is somebody you are very familiar with. Yeah, I mean, he's been an outstanding player in the championship. Uh, thinking about it this morning, where he's going to fit into to this West Ham, it's quite a set formation, I would say, 4-1 four, one, four, one, uh, at West Ham. And um, ideally, I think he'd play off the right-hand side where he can naturally come in, hit shots with his left foot. But I think a 4-3-3 would probably suit him better, whether David Moyes is going to do that in the next few weeks. He's certainly not going to do that, I would suggest, at Manchester City, unless it's more of a 4-5-1. But... Yeah, he he should be a good player. My concern is they've been burnt with the Jordan Hugill deal, who's now on loan at, at QPR. They paid big money to take him from the Championship, from from Preston. Not done the business when he was given an opportunity. Finds himself back on loan in the second tier. So it's not one that's going to be a season changer, I don't think, for West Ham. But given opportunities, I think he could become a Premier League player in time, but you have to be patient. But he'll have to hurry because they might only have a month or two left in, in, in the well, Premier the, League. The cynics would say mm. is this signing uh, with a uh, an eye on next season where they've now got one of the hottest properties in the second tier. Right. Well, um, they are one point off safety at the moment uh, in 18th place just behind Aston Villa. Uh, one other detail relevant to this game is that Parasite director and Oscar winner uh, Bong Joon-ho uh, revealed back in November on Reddit that if he was to organise a Last Supper, his guest list would include Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese and Kevin De Bruyne. Kevin De Bruyne. Yeah. What extraordinary. A, what a meeting of minds that would be. But yeah, also because if I was to go through Man City squad, he wouldn't be the one I'd leap, that would leap out as a potential dinner party kind of uh, material. Who would you go for, James? Well, I don't know, but Kevin, he, he, he doesn't seem much the talker. If you He's know got a bit of an edge to him though, hasn't he? Mm. There's something a bit... Yeah, you know, occasionally in, in open, post-match interviews, he'll, he'll he slyly just you know nudge someone underneath the bus, right? Which I quite like, which I quite respect. Okay, yeah, fair. Who would I go for out of that team? Mm. Um, Benjamin Mendy for the last. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So there's that. All right. Uh, well, loads more to come as we touch on one or two big European matters and more from the weekend. Right now, though, producer Ben he's been speaking to Paddy Power. Happy Monday to you, listeners. I'm on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. And Lee, we've got a bonus Premier League fixture on Wednesday. It's Man City's rearranged game with West Ham. Um, City haven't scored in their last two games, so how many will they score here? I think it's fair to say we're confident they're in their barren run in this one. We go 1-100 to that City score. Then again, given West Ham's defending last time out against Brighton, that could be perceived as value. It's also heavily odds on that City score at least twice, 1-12, to and 4-9 to they get three or more goals. To score four or more times is just 13-10, to so this could be a goal fest, albeit for City. 
Before that, of course, the Champions League is back and the holders Liverpool are away in Madrid taking on Atletico. Could they win at the Wonder? Oh, I'm trying to find new ways to say Liverpool are favourites to win games of football because it seems to be a copy and paste job for them in the betting at the minute. So how about this? Jurgen Klopp's men are outsiders to lose this one. Hmm, not quite. OK, Liverpool fans hoping to snatch a draw in Madrid will be disappointed according to our numbers. Weird. Fine, I'll just say it. The Reds are 6-5 to favourites to win at the Wonder and it's very difficult to back against that outcome. And finally, it's Spurs versus RB Leipzig on Wednesday. How far can Jose take Tottenham in Europe this season? I've heard some pundits say that Jose Mourinho has sucked the joy out of Tottenham since going there, but I must be missing something. Back-to-back 3-2 victories where they've had to come from behind, each sealed with a late Sun Hyung Min winner. That definitely scratches my itch. And they're favourites to win on Wednesday, but we make them odds-on to go out after this tie. In our stage of elimination betting market, they're 4-6 to six go out in the last 16, 13-5 to five in the quarterfinal, 6-1 to one to exit in the semi, and 12-1 to one to reach the final. It's 25-1, to one, i.e. just under a 4% chance, they win the Champions League. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, uh, mentioned Champions League, Tom, and obviously Tuesday we're going to be going big on this in the Totally Football Show, which is up early, early doors on Tuesday. But a quick nod to the other midweek games. One is Atalanta-Valencia. Atalanta with a big win over Roma uh, this weekend in Serie A. Uh, Borussia Dortmund, meanwhile, taking on uh, Paris Saint-Germain, who had a real wobble this weekend. What happened? Yeah, remarkable game at uh, the Stade de la Licorne against Amiens, um, who are sort of scrapping towards the bottom of the table uh, in in Liga, in the relegation zone, in fact. PSG, who named uh, a weakened team, no Neymar, no Mbappe, uh, Marquinhos, Verratti on the bench, fell 3-0 down in the first 29 minutes. Gael Kakuta former Chelsea boy wonder, scoring an absolute beauty and setting up another. PSG comes storming back in the second half. Two goals from 17-year-old Tongu Kouassi, the latest player off their production line, uh, and who doesn't have his name on the back of his shirt because he's still to sign his first professional contract. They go 4-3 up, Mm -hmm. uh, and then Seru Gerasi scores his second goal of the game in stoppage time. 4-4 final score, uh, and who'd have thunk it? Um, so slightly worrying to concede four goals to a team in the relegation zone. But as Thomas Tuchel was at pains to point out afterwards, it was a much changed PSG team. Right. Uh, and they had been on a really good dynamic prior to that. They're now unbeaten in 23 games in all competitions. 20 wins, three draws, no defeats. Is, is that a French footballing phrase, being on a good dynamic? Um, Un dynamique Yeah, yeah bon. you might you might say that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that clash with... Borussia Dortmund and, uh, and Jane Sancho and, and uh, Erling Haaland, all that. That's got to be the game of the week, no, in Europe, Michael, would you say? Borussia yeah, Dortmund I think it's PSG. I think that'll be really, really exciting. Mm. And uh, I'm also really up for the Atalanta game. All right, I just, it's just so good to watch. And I think Valencia aren't all that. No. I, I quite fancy Atalanta to just, I really hope they go all guns blazing because I think they can really outplay them and maybe be a, uh, you know, a little bit of what Ajax were last season, you know, kind of outsiders who just have the technical ability and the cohesion to just outplay supposedly bigger sides. They're right. just great fun, Atalanta. I love... I, one of the few sides I really kind of make time to watch every week. Well, that's you know? good. I mean, it was kind of a miracle that they got into the Champions League in the first place, and then it's kind of a miracle they got out of the group after that yeah, appalling yeah. start they made. But, the, I mean, the uh, weekend result 
obviously that was fourth against fifth. They put themselves six points ahead of yeah. Roma. So you've got to think that they'll uh, retain their place in the yeah. Champions League for next Depending season. Depending on what faxes they sent in 2012, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Sam, meantime, mid uh, sorry, on, on the weekend, uh, the big story in the Championship was West Brom Forest. How did that go? That was crazy. Absolutely crazy. Keith Stroud... Had a pretty remarkable, referee, yeah, yeah, pretty remarkable game. I think. So the, there was a lot of comment about him, especially from Forest fans on on Twitter, on social media. Yeah, it, it levels itself out a little bit because West Brom had a very contentious goal disallowed in the last moments, but Jake Livermore quite easily could have seen red for a really poor challenge on Ribeiro. Uh, there was a foul in the lead up to the West Brom second goal on Abiobi that was. Again, probably should have been awarded. But, uh, you know, all in all, a really good point for Nottingham Forest and Mm. the the big winners this weekend, Leeds United, who got over the line against Bristol City in typical fashion. Loads of chances, couldn't find that second one, but got the victory. And you have to go all the way down to eighth and Blackburn for the next team in the division who got maximum points. So I think a week of recovery for Leeds United after a good draw at Brentford and winning the game on Saturday. Right, West Brom with that 2-2 draw with Forrest. They are now, well, they've seen their lead cut to four points now at the top ahead of Leeds. Fulham in third place, a point ahead of Brentford and Forrest with Preston currently in sixth place. Crikey. Alrighty, well, there'll be more about all of that in, of course, the Totally Football League show featuring your good self, Sam. Indeed. On Wednesday. On Wednesday. Tuesday morning, bright and early, you can hear Raphael Honigstein, Julian Laurent, James Horncastle and Alvaro Romeo previewing all of the midweek fun and, of course, looking back on the big stories from around Europe uh, this weekend. And then Thursday, another regular show looking at what happened and that. Uh, that's grand. That's it for today's show, though. So many thanks to Tom, Sam and Michael for being with us. Let's now have a super rest to your Monday and of the week as well. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too. The Totally Football Show. Hello, I'm Andrew Slavin, host of the Totally Scottish Football Show. And if you like football, you're gonna love Scottish football. It's not all just Stevie G and Scott Brown up here. No, because we talk about all of the Scottish football, and geez, oh, it's great. There's actually a title race this year in the Premiership. Stevie G will be hoping not to slip up again. Hearts are tearing each other a new one. Motherwell are doing, well, well, they're doing well. So if you like your football to be competitive, have a title race and a ton of drama off and on the pitch, the Totally Scottish Football Show is most definitely for you. Grab Scottish football by the boys, just like Ryan Christie did, and listen to the Totally Scottish Football Show, available everywhere, even in England. Muddy Knees Media.